How about just beds at baseball games so we can all sleep? Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is May 12th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me from the other side of Central Park is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm hanging in there. Um, from the other side of his lawn in Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you? <laughs> Good. How are you? How's your car? My car's great. Everything's great. And nothing. <laughs> no problems here. Do you know what I did this weekend? Which no. was... Uh, Interesting, to say the least. I played golf. You did? Wow. Wow. Where? I played I played um Corona golf, COVID golf. Um <laughs> which was interesting. They they LA to its credit put in a bunch of restrictions. they reopened the courses, the public courses. There's one right near my house. And they did it with a bunch of sort of interesting restrictions, which actually I was pretty happy about. You had to wear a face mask. Mm-hmm. You couldn't drive a cart. They, you couldn't touch the, the flag, which actually most people don't do anyway since they changed the rule. So yeah. that wasn't a big deal. Uh, they got rid of all the things like the rakes and the uh, ball washers. So there was nothing you would touch that anyone else would touch. They even put a little like piece of foam in the, in the cups so that you didn't have to reach in and put your hand in the cup. Instead, you could just use your putter to scoop the ball out. Um, which <laughs> that's was kind of a little excessive. That's kind of like irrelevant. A too much. I don't usually end up getting it in the. Uh, the hole anyway. <laughs> Who cares about that? <laughs> well, and it speaks to how golf works too. Like golf is a great game for social distancing. Like it just it's, it's the only game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, my husband and I have been trying to figure out how we can golf. Um, cause I mean, it's already a little tricky in New York, but like the nearest course is like six miles away. So we could walk six miles with our clubs, then walk the course, then walk the six miles home. And I'm like, or I could watch TV this afternoon. So that's what we're yeah. doing instead. I, there's not a great... Not a great solution when you don't have a car. <laughs> and like, you know, since we talked last week about the state of sports video games being down, you still could at least consult Tiger Woods 2005. You know, it's a, if you get a if you get a emulator, or maybe like a, one of those PS3s that has uh, compatibility, you know, mode going backwards, you play the PlayStation 2 version of Tiger Woods 05. Yeah. It's just like playing real golf. Thing. It's better than real golf. It's um Van Cortland Park in the Bronx as one of its courses. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm sure. Yeah. It went, uh, you know, it went, there are all kinds Pebble of crazy Beach, courses. Van Cortland Park and then uh St. Andrews. Andrews. That's the progression. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. On today's show, we'll break down data from a five thirty eight Ipsos poll on how fans are likely to behave when sports return. We'll check in on the NBA and its plans to restart and some opinions that it shouldn't restart at all. And finally, we'll take another deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Some states are taking tentative steps toward reopening places that had shut down to curb the spread of the coronavirus. But there is a difference between something being allowed and that same thing being perceived as safe. 
On a conference call with players last Friday, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver stressed both the uncertainty and the importance of fans actually showing up and attending games. Adrian Wojnarowski broke down what Silver told the players on ESPN's Get Up. And the fact that there's no guarantee on when fans could return or how they would return, if it would be uh, in something less than a packed arena with, you know, essentially social distancing crowds with a limited number of people, that, that there are a lot of possible scenarios. But here's the one thing that Silver wanted to make clear to the players, that fans uh, they generate about 40% of the league's revenue and that the players and the owners are going to have to sit down here. And uh, the, the, collective bargaining, the collective bargaining agreement, as Silver said on that call, it was not built to withstand or endure a pandemic. And when the revenue is down, the players' salaries are going to go down. The stakes are high for getting fans back in arenas, but will they, you know, actually go to the arenas? <laughs> to find out, 538 partnered with the market research firm Ipsos to ask how fans are thinking about sports coming back. Neil, you wrote a story published this morning with the results of the poll. The big question is, will fans come back? Yeah. And, you know, one of the big headline questions that we asked is, would you be likely to come back and attend a sporting game if government restrictions were lifted like now? And it's not really that surprising that uh, only 24% of people said they would be either very likely or somewhat likely. And of that, only 7% said very likely uh, to attend an event in person right now as opposed to obviously 76% said they would be not very likely or not at all likely. And the majority of that was under the not at all likely bucket. 58% uh, gave that answer. So it seems like even if the government, you know, lifted restrictions and the barriers to the sports coming back were removed and they were just like, okay, it's business as usual. Come back and, and go to games like before. It's fine. Uh, people would, would naturally feel uh, skittish about that and they, and they wouldn't want to come back. Yeah. Three quarters of Americans. That, that, that was surprising to me that it was that high. I figured most people wouldn't be ready to jump right back into going to an, an event, but, but that many people seemed like a lot to me. So I'm curious about where each of you stand on this. I mean, Jeff, if, if there were, if there were a PGA tour event happening in your neighborhood, would you go? No, I probably wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't, but I'm not, you know, I, I'm not, the, uh, it's funny to say this in the same pod where I talked about playing golf and clear, <laughs> which was a little out of character, but I'm being precautious. I wouldn't do that. I'm avoiding crowds at all costs. Right. So no, um, I think there is something more appealing like playing golf about watching golf that, um, you know, just the nature of being outside and, and not being restricted to a seat and next to someone you don't know and all this. Whereas in golf, you can kind of do whatever you want. If you've ever been to a pro golf tournament, you can follow a group. You can hang out under a tree and watch the same shot hit by every player every time. You could, you know, fall asleep under a tree because you're bored by that. Uh. <laughs> I feel like really this is more just like Jeff doesn't want to go to a golf tournament. No, yeah, but I'm not the best person to ask. But, but to answer your question, I am not interested right now at the moment of of going and being in the crowd at all by definition entertainment and going to see something uh, going it's not mandatory it feels like an unnecessary risk so i think you're going to have a hard time convincing anyone um to do this until there's major changes 
Right. And so, and that's what we got into with this poll, which is like, what, you know, what do people need to feel safe was sort of the idea. Neil, can you talk a little bit about how the poll was conducted? Uh, Sure. So uh, it asked 1,109 Americans uh, and it was weighted and kind of adjusted to compensate for the different breakdowns of demographics uh, in the country to try to get an idea of, you know, what the general prevailing opinion was uh, among Americans. It was conducted from May 5th through 11th. You know, they, they asked about things like mandatory face masks, uh, for fans, fans being required to stay six feet away, uh, temperature checks to detect fevers going into the game. Uh, another one was if new coronavirus cases in the area have declined for two consecutive weeks. All of those basically, you know, people felt like they would help some six, about 60% of, uh, people felt like that would help a little. Uh, but, None of them really, or the small number of them really thought that it would help a lot. Maybe 15 to 20% said that those particular measures would, would help them feel a lot more comfortable going to a game. The only thing that really stood out as making people feel a lot more comfortable going to a game was if there was a COVID-19 vaccine. 51% of people in the poll felt like that would help a lot, uh, and uh, about three quarters of the people felt like that would help at least a little, which of course implies that roughly a fourth of people said that they would not even feel more comfortable going to an event in person, even if there was a vaccine, which I think is really fascinating and maybe speaks to this idea that, you know, in, in, in the wake of a pandemic, there's probably going to be a sizable portion of people that just never will feel safe going to a large crowd of people again, because you don't know what uh what's out there i thought the number was sort of funny because it kind of um it it resembles my like current despair to hope ratio <laughs> like i'm about 75 percent hopeful that life will be normal at some point soon and like 25 percent just like in despair <laughs> I think that's yeah. about right yeah, right. That that feels right i mean the yeah it's it's hard right now obviously it's hard to feel to think of of a time of feeling comfortable as comfortable as I used to feel at a baseball game. It's hard to think of a time that I'll be comfortable on the subway. It's just a risk reward thing. It does not sound worth risk. And I, I think that's the truth. And again, this is attending sports live, which, you know, as we've talked about in the past, was already already in a sort of perilous spot. Because the home entertainment side of, of watching sports has gotten, you know, with the flat screen TVs and the HD and the uh, crazy sound you can put in and, and just like people are like watching sports at home has gotten so good. And beer that, is cheaper. There are, yeah, you're there not are snacks. <laughs> yeah. You're not in traffic. I mean, there is something that was traffic. always existentially <laughs> threatening the uh, live sports um, experience. So it, it's not, it, it is not surprising that people are, are willing to give up on that part of their life. I, I do think that there might be a distinction eventually drawn between things that are sort of open air, like a baseball game, like golf, yeah. even, and um, things that are sort of more enclosed and there's like recirculation of air. If there's poor ventilation, you know, there are studies that show that the transmission rate outside 
is a lot lower than inside, you know, and, and that it's, you know, with, with the, the, the wind blowing, you know, and all of these things, as long as you're keeping a distance, which is going to be the real challenge, I think, um, and, and enforcing that uh, in, in like a ballpark or something like that, it could be at least safer than, you know, packing into a movie theater or something like that, you know. Or a basketball game. I mean, is right, that... Right, because those are all a- indoors. Inherently, those are indoors. Right. Um, are we going to start seeing, like, you know, the NHL Winter Classic being, like, <laughs> all games now are outdoors? <laughs> going back to our roots here. and <laughs> You're going to play on that stock pond, and you're going to like it. Um, so the poll did say that um, 75% of respondents did want is we're willing to to see sports on tv they did want like sports to come back in that form right they were happy with that idea yeah right i mean the the appetite for sports on television i don't think has really diminished and if anything it's it's as strong as ever as we've seen from even like the slightest sports adjacent thing, like the um, these drafts, like we talked about, and also the last dance and all these things, getting these like bonkers mega ratings for what they are, um, tells you that people are really willing to watch these things and are missing them. I mean, 38% of people uh, in our poll said that they missed sports more than they expected. Well, and so another question we asked about um, post-pandemic sports attendance, we asked um, if fans would be willing to spend the same amount of money they spent beforehand on tickets afterwards. What did the poll say about that? Yeah, so about 50% said they'd be willing to spend the same amount for tickets as before. And uh, 33% strongly disagreed. Uh, and, you know, it's tough to know how much to make of that in terms of Fans have complained about ticket prices as long as there have been ticket prices. Um, but also probably a lot of it reflects people's thinking about their own finances and, you know, their ability to spend on superfluous things like entertainment. And, and I think this one also um, sort of like the vaccine question earlier is is tied to you know, people's current sentiment. I mean, by definition, if we're at a point where people are buying tickets again on a regular basis, then the economy should be doing better. And maybe all of a sudden this number changes because I I think that's the thing, which is, you know, obviously frustrating with certain responses to this is that the, the health and the economic, the economic health are, are, are tied to each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there's not one without the other. So uh, assuming we're all, you know, a lot healthier and there's uh, there's better treatment, there's better, there's a vaccine, you know, then the economy is going to be better. And then maybe people will feel better about opening their walls. Obviously, right now, no one wants to shell out that kind of money um, regardless. I mean, even, you know, it just doesn't sound worth it because, as you said, everything was viewed pretty universally as overpriced. I even find it, it's interesting that there are people suing um, cable providers for not having, there's, I mean, they've signed up for sports packages and there are no sports. There are like so many wrinkles to all of this and just layers upon layers of, of problems when, when you take out this component of society like sports. Um, it's fascinating because that money is like, 
But it's not like the cable company is just going to be like, here you go. It's back to you. I mean, the money's gone. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's amazing how much of it was sort of this like house of cards that were all built on top of this assumption, rightly assumed based on essentially our whole history, you know, our recent history, at least, that sports was going to continue to be this thing that at least existed and people <laughs> were interested in and was sort of you know, providing entertainment on a, on a nightly basis. And that's the thing with these like, you know, black swan events that, you know, they're not really anticipated uh, in at any stage. Like, I don't think any of these contracts, yes, they had like force majeure clauses thinking, oh, you know, uh, we can try to call back some payments in the event of some kind of act of God. But I don't even think the people that were writing those, those are more sort of just standard put in the contract boilerplate type things just to cover yourself. Uh, I don't think anyone was actually assigning like a essentially a non-zero probability to this contingency. And now we're like seeing it actually play out. And that's uh, you start to see all the ways in which um, people who have built whole industries on the assumption that sports will exist are now reacting to the fact that they no longer exist. It's, it's really crazy. Well, yeah. How many, how many circumstances could there be where everybody's like, you know, people are confined to their homes, but like most people are still healthy. Um, The virus hasn't hit, you know, that many people, a lot, of course, but like, there are a lot of people who are just like stuck, but there are no sports. Like there are not a lot of, you know, not a lot of disasters that could happen that way where sports could theoretically be played, but we're choosing not to play them for the safety of others. Like this was a whole new ball game. Yeah. This might be like one of the only possible ways in which that would happen. Like if, if, if society is preserved, but sports are impossible to be played. Like you would think that it would come down to like, oh, if some kind of like nuclear attack happened, we'd have a lot bigger problems than, you know, trying to figure out when MLB would start or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's it's so bizarre. That's the, th- that's the thing that's tricky about this. And it's tricky for the people, you know, the organizers and the, and the leagues and anyone with money at stake. It's because the interest is obviously not going anywhere. I mean, you just look at the last dance and the response to that. Or the response to the draft, you know, this is a big part of people's lives in the same way that movies are a big part of people's lives. It's just the way they are consumed and, you know, the way we engage with them, which is going to change, at least in the next like two, three years. I mean, maybe, you know, we get some distance behind this and, and things return to normal a little bit we can go back to this, but maybe not. I mean, maybe this is, maybe these changes will be here to stay. Likewise with the movie theaters, you know, I'd feel better about going to one of those like fancy movie theaters where you get like the big reclining seat and there's not someone, you know, right up next to you. You have some distance, like maybe all movie theaters will become like that. Ooh, reclining seats at baseball games. That's what I want. Sure. Sure. Yes. How about just beds at baseball games where you can just all sleep. (laughs) Well, oh. well, 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 the threatens to hold a guy on first base. <laughs> and, um, Jeff, I'm a- sensing a, th- I'm sensing a theme for you're talking about wanting to sleep during golf uh, <laughs> round. Yeah. You're, t- you're talking about wanting to sleep during baseball game. I'm just exhausted. I just yeah. want to. Yeah. It's, it's very early for Jeff. Still, <laughs> all right. I think that's a good place to leave this for now. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the NBA. 
So as we mentioned earlier, last Friday, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver got on a conference call with players to discuss where the league is in its thinking about returning to play. Among the highlights were that the NBA doesn't expect fans in the stands, it might try to play at two isolated sites, and it still wants to have a full four-round, seven games per series postseason. But the league leaders feel like they don't have to make a decision this month or even before mid-June. That prompted some pushback from Shaquille O'Neal, for one. Shaq told USA Today that the NBA should just scrap the season and focus on 2021, in part because any champion crowned in any different playoff format would always have a giant asterisk. Former NFL standout Marcus Spears on ESPN's Get Up agreed with Shaq about the legitimacy of a 2020 NBA champion. They wouldn't be a legit champ. I agree with Shaq because of the different season. And to Woj's point, like you can look at it like that and say, hey, it is it, everybody is going to have an asterisk. Things will be changed. But comparing it to what we've compared it to since the NBA, since the NBA's um, inception, and even in, in times where the NBA wasn't able to have a regular season, we are going to talk about that. And legitimately, people don't have have the same playing field. The thing that we talk about in sports a lot is the ability to get ready, the ability to stay in kind of some structured uh, confines so every guy has an opportunity to do the same thing and push themselves to that point. The NBA is obviously going to try to figure out how to make the rest of the season happen. There's too much money on the line for them not to. But Jeff, what do you think about scrapping the season from the player's perspective? I just want to push back on Shaq's premise real quick because I don't know if I agree with that I think actually if you were to do a full playoffs it'll get forgotten that this season or this format was different down the line I think people will move on beyond that I think the NBA playoffs are enough of a grind that not anyone's going to be like, oh, well, actually, remember, the the Pelicans never had a chance to make the playoffs. You know, like, <laughs> it just doesn't seem very likely. As, it, as as everyone knows, I'm a New Jersey Devil fan. Everyone knows this. Um, <laughs> they Their first Stanley Cup was won in the partial season, the lockout season. And no one talks about I mean, granted, it's a little different. It's a lot different. But it's never even mentioned that they there's anything like because they didn't play a full 82 game schedule that season that 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 title is somehow not as you know worthy as the other titles no do we even remember like which titles those were well yeah i i think that's a great point because you know some of it was aided by the fact that the devils yes they won in 95 in the 48 game season but then they won multiple other cups later in full seasons but that's actually kind of a pattern that we see like if you think about the 2012 nba season uh was delayed because of labor conflicts and the heat won and then the heat won again the next year uh you think about the 99 spurs they won a shortened season that was actually the first one of a, a one of the longest dynasties uh in nba history so i think that uh you know if you look at cases in the past where these things happen maybe the exception is like the 95 baseball season was slightly shortened to 144 games and the braves won and then they didn't win again but the Braves were also like they went to the World Series the two years, uh, you know, prior to that. And they went to the World Series a few times later after that. Yeah, they so should have won more. <laughs> they should have won more. Right. Exactly. Uh, and, and they were in the middle of the stretch where they won what, like 14 straight division titles. So I think in each of those cases, any argument that you made at the time, you know, that it was like a illegitimate champion would have been 
retrospectively just like laughable because the teams ended up proving in subsequent seasons that they definitely were legitimate champs. Well, that and that's the like the beauty of the NBA playoffs. The best team wins. Like it's the series are long enough that and the the grind is enough. It's four rounds. Like the the best teams do usually win or at least make the finals. So I feel like that's such a weird thing to be worried about. I mean, if they changed the format substantially, made it fewer rounds, um, you know, that that maybe, but like even if they changed it so the first rounds weren't seven games, even that I'd be like, who cares? Like they did they weren't always seven games. It's like we we tend to think that the last thing that happened was the thing that always has to happen, and, and then things change all the time, and it's not yeah. I mean, it, if it, it, I guess it does depend on the champion, but it, yeah, if it was like an NCAA tournament style, then okay, maybe that'd be a little different. Yeah. <laughs> but but, to, but just to go back to your question, though, I I think you have to separate the two. I mean, I don't think they're like this thinking that if we scrap this season, then we can start next season on time and everything will be normal and perfect. And that'll be a legitimate full season. It's not going to work like that. Like we have no idea right now. And if you listen to some of the scientists, it's pretty grim what the fall is going to be like. There's a very good chance they could scrap this season and then end up still delaying the next season anyway. Well, right. So, Yeah, and I thought that was a great point that Adam Silver even made is, you know, that uh, a Christmas Day start actually, you know, reduces the probability that you're in the middle of that second wave when you start up the 2021 season. Right. And they're I mean, they're probably going to do something like that, no matter what they do with the end of this season. I mean, that that's the kind of decision they'll have to make that then they like kind of back out from. But that seems that seems like good planning on the NBA's part. I mean, we have to think about this longer term than just, you know, what's going to happen this summer. Um, and so that, that, that impressed me on that call with, with Adam Silver. Did anything else on the call jump out to you guys as being either like realistic thinking from the league or maybe very unrealistic? The thing that stood out to me was the idea about what happens when a player tests positive. What Silver was saying was that, it wouldn't derail everything. And, you know, there was talk, a lot of talk for the last few weeks that, you know, the second one player test, they're just going to cancel the whole thing anyway. But he, he was suggesting more that that player would just be removed and placed into quarantine and the, the rest of the playoffs would go on as normal. I'm, I'm a little dubious about that. I think that would be like, for instance, okay, that sounds great. What if that player is LeBron James? You know, what if that player is Giannis? I mean, like, that would have major impact, obviously, on the court. But also, I just think, you know, how does that affect the rest of the team, knowing that one of their players is tested positive and, and you know, I've been in close contact or sharing, you know, a locker room with this guy and, you know, handling a ball that he had just handled and all that stuff. I mean, I, I think that, I think, I, I, I don't know, that that felt a little unrealistic to me. What did you guys think about it? Yeah, I totally agree with that, Jeff. It seems like that's the big question that nobody really has a great answer for because, you know, what are you going to do? How how do you, conditional on the idea that you're going to proceed with the, the season, which doesn't have to happen, but I think economically, based on all the factors involved, they have every incentive in the world to try to make it happen. But I don't know that you're ever going to make it 100% safe. The best you can do, because, I mean, the nature of the virus, the fact that you can shed virus before you start showing symptoms makes it 
basically impossible to be totally sure that your players are virus free. But we assume a lot of risk in our daily lives all the time. Like, you know, it's a it's a, it's an interesting trade off, but it resembles what we're kind of going through uh, in in the economy at large. This idea of, you know, you can't stay dormant as a society or as a basketball league forever. Uh, you have to ease things back in some way, shape or form. What's the safest way to do that? And is there an acceptable level of risk that you're just going to have to sort of, you know, uh, be prepared for in exchange for, you know, resuming activity. And, and just as long as it stays below a certain baseline, then you're okay with that. Just to play devil's advocate here, it is their jobs. It's their livelihood. They can't work from home. You know, um, they can't, you know, conduct their jobs via zoom. Zoom basketball, right? <laughs> and it, when they're not playing, they're not getting paid. And and I think you know, granted, obviously, you know, they make a good amount of money, and they their bank accounts, they probably have stuff in savings. Let's hope, and that they're not going to be, you know, it's not going to impact their lives, and that would a lot of industries. But but I think. M- People do want to work. I mean, the idea of, of going back to work is different and conducting what you what you do for a living um, is different than, you know, these I- ideas of going just for frivolous or comparatively frivolous entertainment. So I, I think the players w- there you I think ultimately, I mean, it's hard to do a, a generalization about the entire union, especially when you have, you know, a wide disparity in, in how much money people are making. Um, I think ultimately the players will want to return. I, I think you'll see that across all sports. I think there's probably, you look at college athletes, there's probably people who are dying to return and they're not getting paid. Um, so maybe that's just what I say to, uh, you know, not feel guilty like like you just uh, alluded to, Sarah. <laughs> but no. I think it's true. Uh, but, and I, I agree. I mean, I think I think that, they it's also like a game they love and they they want to play it and they want to they want to play for fans they i mean there's this this weird relationship where like we need them and they need us and like figuring out that acceptable risk is i mean this is going to be probably the first time we figure out that kind of risk for like literally then everything we do going forward until this pandemic is over and maybe after that too yeah uh, completely and you know i think that we're seeing almost like a real time restructuring or renegotiation of these collective bargaining bargaining agreements or you know at least some of the some of the tenets of them playing out right now under these you know extraordinary circumstances Fans tend to side with the owners and not the players for whatever reason. Uh, and that's under normal circumstances. So imagine now you've got um, a bunch of people in the U.S. You know, who have lost their jobs or they're furloughed uh, and, and they're facing financial difficulties. And then the perception might be that, oh, look at these players. They make millions a year and they're asking for more. They're you know trying to, to change the terms of their agreements. That's, I think, the optics that the players are going to have to be really careful about avoiding uh, because you know the they know that the owners are trying to kind of use this to their advantage and and it's a delicate PR battle between the two of them. Yeah, I mean I think both both sides have to both sides of in every league have to approach this really 
carefully. And there's a lot of mistrust, more so in some leagues than others. I mean, I do think the NBA, there seems to be more, a little more trust between the sides right now. Um, you saw that after the call that there were players saying they appreciated Adam Silver's transparency. And um, I mean, and he's, and he's right there. The CBAs were not built for pandemics. The CB, I mean, none of us were built for pandemics. The society yeah. wasn't. So that feels true and like, right. Um, and, and there's, they, in the NBA, they decided to extend the current CBA and that prevents any termination of any of it. But everybody stands to lose money here. Yeah, I think every like it starts at the top. Everyone's losing money. The, the owners are losing money. The um, the TV networks are losing money. The players are losing money. The people who are work concessions at Madison Square Garden and now no longer have a job are are losing a lot of money and, and probably getting hit the hardest. And that's the way these things always go. So the people on the bottom feel the effects a lot worse. And you know, I think that that's true with sports, but that's also true with a large chunk of all the industries in this country. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. If you start comparing, you know, uh, how much money this uh, billionaire loses versus this person, yeah, you're going to get frustrated. But I, I think that's <laughs> sort of just the nature of capitalism, um, especially when it's going very badly. You know, I don't know that there's anything that can necessarily be done about that. I don't know how you kind of make a league pandemic proof in that way. Uh, you know, and that goes back to what we were saying earlier is, are they going to, you know, optimize for this TV and streaming model more now? You know, a lot of the TV contracts are set in stone basically right now. Uh, you know, and they maybe they can try to claw back some of that money. But, you know, these things were written years earlier uh and maybe it'll come up in the next negotiating period when when the tv contracts are up again but you know i don't know do you go to a pay-per-view model it's kind of it's kind of lose lose because it goes back to the same thing we were saying which is then you're asking consumers who are already taking a hit left and right and massive unemployment to pay more or right. potentially pay more which which doesn't you know feel like a fix or you know a sustainable solution either and to what you were saying earlier, I mean, you, you kind of also run the risk of overcorrecting because there will be a time in which it is safe to go back and watch sports in person again. I mean, the, the, the 1918 pandemic happened and people went back to watching games at Yankee Stadium. You know, I mean, in some cases they never stopped, like in, <laughs> what was it, Philadelphia? But like, I don't know, there's going to be a time in which things look like they did in 2019, you know, and, and, uh, you know, there will be some people that don't go back. Um, but I think for the most part, you do sort of look at that and you're like, well, if we put everything in the streaming and, and TV bucket now, what, you know, are we overcorrecting? It's like trying to steer the Titanic, you know, it's like by the time that you, you've already hit the iceberg, and by the time you you turn the thing, maybe you're headed for another iceberg. Like, I don't know. It's uh, maybe the analogy is falling apart at that point. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what I'm saying is that, you know, these things are very difficult to unravel uh, in, in a short period of time. And by the time that you actually were able to kind of unwind everything and rewrite everything, the crisis may already be passed at that point. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, by the way, just look at the 1918 season, how ominous that was. It was. Red Sox beating the Cubs. And of Oof. course, 
that was the curse the, series. <laughs> that, was, that was the Red Sox. Uh, they didn't win another one for a while after that. I don't. Think. <laughs> I think I heard something about that. Yeah. Well, and then the first the first World Series after that was was tainted by uh, scandal. Oh yeah. See, we were back in the swing of things the next year so easily that the the Black Sox could cheat in baseball like that. You know, that gives me some hope. Things can well, get maybe back they to normal. Took that, maybe they took that money because the, the CBA had reduced their share of right. the gate receipt I think, in the I previous think we're, year. We're foreshadowing 2021 MLB baseball. It's going to be fixed. Who's going to be the cheaters? I mean, obviously the Astros. We all know the answer to that question. <laughs> Sorry, that was a dumb question. <laughs> Okay, I think that is a great place to leave this discussion. We'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. So, you know, never let a global pandemic get in the way of college basketball recruiting scandals. Uh, That's what I always say. And right now there's a uh, messy legal situation swirling around. I guess he's an ex-college basketball player around New Orleans Pelicans rookie Zion Williamson. So uh, if you didn't catch this, Zion's former marketing representative has asked him to admit under oath that his family members received gifts, money, and benefits from people acting on behalf of shoe companies, so Adidas, Nike, but also Duke, in exchange for him potentially signing with them. Uh, and so it's kind of a complicated mess. It stemmed from uh, Zion trying to change representatives, and then the the representative that he spurned sort of being like, oh, yeah, well... You know, I'm going to counter sue you and try to get you to admit to this under oath. But the big implication is that Zion broke NCAA rules and probably shouldn't have been eligible if these are true. These are all kind of allegations right now. He hasn't (laughs) admitted to anything. Uh, But if they were true, he would have been ineligible to play while he was at Duke. Now, the big question is. Are we shocked by this (laughs) at all? I mean, you know, the NCAA's amateur model is kind of asking for this. It's it's really crumbling more and more all the time anyway, but there's a long and rich history of star athletes flouting it forever uh, because as long as you're not being paid through the thing that you're actually doing, it opens up avenues to get paid through other means. <laughs> uh, it kind of makes me think of, uh, there's a great line from the 1998 comedy uh, Basketball. I don't know if you guys recall it, where um, wow. the evil owner <laughs> is trying to trying to tempt Matt Stone's character into monetizing the new sport. And he says, do you think Shaq got rich playing in Orlando? Hardly. He made his fortune moving to LA. You know how much he makes now? And then Stone's character says, as much as he made playing in college. <laughs> and what's really great about that is that later Shaq has joked openly about how he was being paid while he was at LSU. So it went from being sort of an under the radar rumor that, you know, uh, open secret or whatever to just being like, yep, they, they, they paid him. Uh, so I wanted to kind of delve into other stars who were paid while they were at college. Um, we, we talked about Memphis's James Wiseman on the show, uh, back in November. Uh, it was alleged that Memphis coach Penny Hardaway had paid moving expenses for Wiseman's family while he was the AAU coach. And, uh, let's say that didn't hurt Memphis's prospects of signing Wiseman when Hardaway became the coach there. It's funny how that worked out. 
And that's really scratching the surface. Like you can go back. Um, you have DeAndre Ayton at Arizona recently, uh, wherein coach uh, Sean Miller was caught by an FBI wiretap discussing paying $100,000 to get Ayton to commit. But I like the classics. I like going back in time and looking at some of the ones from the past. So, Jeff, I have to talk about Chris Weber in <laughs> Michigan, uh, where booster Ed Martin allegedly paid $616,000 to Weber, along with here's some other great names from the past. Maurice Taylor, Robert Tractor Trailer, and Lewis Bullock uh, to them while they were there that ended up actually sort of leading to the Fab Five's records being invalidated. I'm sure this is all news to Jeff. He's hearing it for the first time. <laughs> the, the late, the late Robert Tractor Trailer. The late Robert uh, Tractor Trailer. I believe the I mean, late Ed Martin also. Uh, I like this one. Chris Mills in Kentucky in 1988. So a UK booster sent a package that was addressed to Mills's father and it accidentally popped open at like a FedEx, you know, sorting center and it revealed a video cassette and 50 $20 bills just fell out of the thing. And, and <laughs> I guess they, they told someone about it and they were like, huh, that's a little weird that a top prospect would, would uh, be receiving this from a Kentucky booster. Um, and Chris Mills ended up actually transferring to Arizona, who seems to be at the epicenter of a lot of these scandals. Um, there was one in uh, UCLA in, in 1980. They had to vacate their Final Four appearance that year because the school arranged... I mean, you got to hand it to UCLA for this. They arranged meals, entertainment, cars, and reduced rent housing, and even helped them scalp tickets to, for games at above uh, market <laughs> value. Um, and that that all happened under Larry Brown, but it's sort of uh, a nice kind of cap to be placed on. There were rumors about UCLA and this booster named Sam Gilbert sending illicit benefits to recruits all throughout the John Wooden era. And Bob Knight, uh, you know, unloaded on him uh, uh, later and said, you know, I don't don't really respect what they did during that that period of time. Uh, and. I think that, you know, th the more that you look back at these things, the the more you realize that things haven't really changed. I mean, the NCAA hasn't changed in the way that they uh, treat the payment of players. You know, it's strictly taboo and it opens the doors to things like there's been a bunch of point shaving scandals also where these gamblers and mafia types come to a player and ask them to adjust the final score relative to the betting line. And, and I think that, you know, Zion... He's he's just the latest in a long line of these um, incidents, and it all sort of stems from the idea that at every point along the way, the NCAA has found a way to blame basically the player and or the coach, and in some cases, the program. And the truth is that this is just the way college sports are when you refuse to pay players what they're worth for the money that they make uh, for for your organization. So, you know, Zion, he's he's part of a proud club of great players <laughs> who uh, who broke NCAA violations. Allegedly, we should say again, <laughs> he had not confirmed this under yeah. oath, but he potentially could. But like, is, is anybody surprised by this allegation about Zion? No. In fact, there were rumors that Zion had taken money or family members had taken money, uh, you know, when he signed with Duke. First of all, it's pretty funny that Neil chose to quote basketball over something like, I don't know, blue chips, which is <laughs> which entirely is about the story of Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is true. That was a documentary. actually. Yeah. Yeah. 
basketball. Um, and I mean, there, there's even not enough change. people talk about basketball. I had to shout it out. I, I liked it, Neil. I, I'm not. I'm. I'm not. I'm saying I liked it. Um, <laughs> but and even blue blue chips has point shaving too. But I, this is the point. I, this is why I think they should get rid of the one, and they should just let players go straight from high school because it's not going to affect college basketball because this only pertains to the super five-star recruits where, where we see the, these teams going to these lengths to, to lure these players in. And, and that's not even really what wins in college basketball as we've seen over the last few years, you know? Yeah. I was like, Oh no, they'll have to vacate Duke's national championship. Whoops. Nope. Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> they'll vacate their third round loss to <laughs> who beat them that year. UCF. No. Was that, that was right? Close, though. UCF oh, they almost, almost Yeah. 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 And, and Neil, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't see, is there, there's not one of these, but maybe Mayo. I don't know. I don't remember the years when they got rid, when they, uh, got rid of the straight from high school rule but whatever that window was, like was 05 or 06 or something okay and it, what year did it start it started with like around garnett kobe era oh yeah 95 96 yeah 95 i so, think was when garnett as you're seeing in that window you don't have any of the none of those big scandals happen i mean i guess I, I, that's probably not good enough but evidence, marcus can be dead yeah, but he. Although, yeah, he probably wouldn't have been able to go. Yeah, he. he yeah, because he was there for a couple the... years. Yeah. So, so point is, let them go straight to the NBA. Why not? It's not going to affect college basketball. You're not going to have all this ugliness of these teams, you know, groveling and and opening, doing shady friends of the program techniques and video cassettes full of twenty dollar bills. Although. That probably needs to be inflation adjusted. Um, <laughs> that wasn't even that much money. Yeah, it was yeah. like that was only a thousand bucks. Come on. Yeah. But I so let players go directly to the NBA and pay players in college, and that would get rid of all of that, right? Oh, for sure. Well, and that's yeah, my but question, I think the first you know, one's easier to do than the second one. Sure. sure. I think if you're good enough to be getting like you know shady, uh, you know booster transaction money then you're probably like well maybe i should just go to the nba and and do this legitimately because i i think it, it really does happen with only this one caliber player yeah i do i mean i i feel like you're right that get paying players in college is going to be tricky doing it legitimately but it wouldn't it be nice if a player could decide okay, I'm ready for the NBA and I'm going to go do it and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my shot. Or I'm not ready and I want to go to college. I'm going to go there but still make a little money so that I don't feel like I have to go to the NBA to, you know, be able to, you know, have money. I mean, like that's what the, the calculus yeah. here is so screwed up for kids. Yeah, no, I agree. Of course, especially when you hear these, these guys can't even afford meals and stuff and they're making all this money. Yeah, it's gross, obviously. Um, it's just, it's just a tough problem to solve. There's a lot of complications and there's a reason, uh, I think the NCAA hasn't been quick to embrace any kind of, you know, system like this. Well, it would be funny if you could get to a point, you know, where you, where you do pay the players and then you end up with like a bidding war where like Duke is bidding against the NBA draft, uh, <laughs> for for some player to you know it's like don't don't declare for the pros we can pay you more <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> that that would be a whole a really interesting world if we ever got to that place um that'd be fun to see 
someday. Yeah, someday. All right. Well, I think that uh, will do it for this week's show. Thank you for so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It does actually help new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.